You're listening to the Protecting Your Practice podcast with your hosts, attorney Dan Mayer and licensed counselor, Melissa Westner. Dan is not your attorney and Melissa is not your therapist, but they're here to help you cross your T's and dot your I's as they talk about all the things you wish you had learned in grad school. And now here are your hosts. Hi there and welcome back. Today, we're going to be diving right into the sometimes anxiety-provoking topic of how to respond when you receive a subpoena. So this is a topic that makes a lot of mental health practitioners really nervous. We know how to be therapists. We know how to do that part of our job, but it's not every day that we do get a subpoena. So when one does come across our desk, it often makes us really nervous. And part of that is that Talking about subpoenas is something that was only briefly covered in grad school for most of us. And we don't have a lot of experience. And, you know, that makes us not feel so confident. So as Dan mentioned last week, he's really comfortable with them. They don't freak him out. And so he's going to be talking with us a little bit about the reasons that he feels a little bit more comfortable. And we're going to be talking about the do's and the don'ts when you do get a subpoena. So Dan, talk with us a little bit about the reasons that subpoenas don't phase you. Well, subpoenas don't phase me as an attorney because, and we'll, and we'll talk a bit about this, most of the time subpoenas come from other attorneys. So for me, it's just a normal day, day of the office. The thing about subpoenas to realize is they're just another example of a process. And they're being used to, in most cases, to elicit information that's needed for the purpose of a matter, a legal a legal issue, that type of thing. And that's really the basic definition of what a subpoena is. And I think that's something we should probably start with. You know, I know most people understand what a subpoena is on a most basic level, maybe why attorneys use them. But for the sake of discussion, let's kind of examine what that is. They're used by attorneys, by courts to gain information to critical legal matter they're handling to compel an individual to test- testify. Or as most practitioners know, they are often used to obtain a patient's medical records. There could be any number of reasons why that's the case. It could be from custody or divorce dispute. could be to a litigation matter could involve personal injury claims, could involve medical malpractice. The list goes on. So to me, it's just an ordinary day at the office. When an attorney comes to me and uh, one of my clients and says, here's the subpoena, I want the records. I'm always going to look at what the law says. And that's that's what the rules are. Are, are. are the processes being followed? Is there grounds to respond? Do we have reason to respond? Is Have we gotten the patient's uh, permission to respond? And if the answer to those questions is no, if the attorney does not have the legal basis yet, or if they ever never get it to have the information, I'm no problem saying no to them. Uh, yeah. And that's just, that's just our job. Well, and those are all really good points. You know, it makes me think about this training that I attended a few years ago. It was led by someone who was an attorney and also a licensed mental health practitioner. And one of the things that he was talking about in this course for practitioners, but it was on ethics and the law. One of the things that he was saying is that time and time again, he has seen clinicians make regular mistakes when it comes to how they're responding to subpoenas. And interestingly enough, one of the most common mistakes that he talked about was the fact that 
he has seen clinicians receive a subpoena and they immediately send over the information that was requested. He said some of these clinicians are not even talking to their client to notify them to say, hey, I received the subpoena. Someone is requesting your health record. Did you know about that? And so people have been, in his experience, just sending over records without notifying the client, talking with them about it. And uh, in even talking with clinicians, I think that there is an impression that if you receive one, this is really important and significant and that you have to respond and send all of the requested information. So I'm wondering if you've seen any of that in your experience, given that you do work with mental health providers at your office. Yeah. So let me paint the scenario for you, which normally happens. So there you are, you're sorting through your mail and you realize amidst the advertisements, the bills, the correspondence is a somewhat thicker white, usually white envelope addressed to you, more likely to the agent for your practice or your practice itself. And in the left-hand corner, you see in big, bold, important lawyer font, the name of a law firm like Dewey, Cheatham and Howe. Uh, and that's a very old attorney joke if you haven't heard that one. And you could stop groaning. I told you there would be bad jokes. So, But you realize in that moment that this is a letter from a law firm. And it's definitely one that does not represent you. Um, and that's what I find that most practitioners have that moment of all-induced panic. But anyway, what typically happens is the practitioners will dutifully open up the envelope, pull it out. It'll be several inf- uh, pages all with formal lawyerly font, all saying big lawyer words. And you'll realize you're looking at a subpoena. (laughs) And if I had a sound effects here now, I would probably cue the movie scream or maybe the echo like subpoena, subpoena. subpoena." But, you know, that's, that's when the phone call comes. And so I understand the instinct of practitioners to think, oh my gosh, this is a legal document. I'm now involved in a legal matter, usually one that's that's indicative of litigation of some sort. So I know it's scary. The reality is it doesn't have to be. And I'm telling you now, practitioners who are listening, that it will be okay, usually. Now, <laughs> we lawyers like to use words like usually and depends that don't really fully commit us to anything. <laughs> but for real, we'll get to the occasions where it may not always be so okay, but for let's, let's start first with kind of the easy part. Generally speaking, when you get a subpoena, it just means that there is a party that wants access to the records that you likely hold on behalf of one of your clients or patients. And, you know, it can be adversarial and sometimes it cannot be. A lot of times I'll have practitioners call me and I'll look at the subpoena and it turns out it's actually coming from the attorney for their patient. Other times it will be coming from an opposing party, but it, it's not something to be scared of. It's just something to know it's a process. The attorney on the other side is not out to get you. They are not out to give you a hard time. They're doing their job. Someone hired them to represent them and they are following the legal process to try to get information. Sure. So in terms of next steps or the way that you would hope clinicians would respond, when they receive that, what are some things that you hope clinicians would think to do when they get that letter? First thing you should do is look to see who sent the subpoena. Check to see who signed it. Verify if the request is from a judge, administrative agency, licensing board, or grand jury. Those matter. Or someone who's not any of those things, such as a lawyer, a court clerk, for example. 
One of the things I've seen practitioners do, and this is very common, especially in Maryland, can't necessarily say for other states, but I'm assuming it's the same way, is that I've gotten the calls from a, from a clinician saying, you know, I know I've had a conversation with you about subpoenas in the past, and you've mentioned something about a judge signing it. Well, this one's signed by a judge. I'm sending it over to you. And I go and look, it's not signed by a judge. What they're confusing is, is that on all of the Maryland subpoena forms, they click, uh, the clerk's signature is featured, right? But that's not where you should be looking at. The very, very bottom, typically, of a subpoena on the last page or second to last page will be something that will say, you know, it's the name of the person who is issuing it. If it says judge so-and-so, then it's likely an attorney, uh, judge. Um, if it's an attorney you know, from, an, uh, from a law firm, then that's another thing. And so that's a very important thing because generally speaking, you are not required to respond or release records to an attorney just because they send you a subpoena. That is not the case with a judge, administrative agency, or licensing board, or grand jury. Uh, that HIPAA, is important to know. Can you is. say that again? I want to make yes. sure that everybody got what you just said. Yes, and I will also say that HIPAA, as well as uh, state laws, generally identify that. There are exceptions to the rule about releasing information. And so if it is not a judge, administrative agency, licensing board or grand jury or something other official state, official agency, federal agency, um, judge, that type of thing. If it's from a lawyer, from a law firm or a law practice, in most cases, you do not necessarily need to respond. Now, important caveat to that is you should not be making this decision by yourself. Unless you have a cousin, uncle, brother, mother, husband, wife, spouse, partner, sister, whoever, who's an attorney, and they look that over for you and they say to you and tell you what it is and how to respond, unless you are 100% certain that you know, and I'm being serious, you know in your heart of hearts whether or not you know this. If you know in your heart of hearts that you know how to respond, you know what to do here, okay, but... 99% 99% of the rest of us uh, uh, practitioners, you should be consulting with your legal counsel. You know, at least sending it to them, let them know, you know, take a look at it. Because the consequences, you're not going to necessarily go to jail necessarily. But the point is, is that you're being requested by an official form of, under a legislative process, a statutory process, I should say, to respond and provide information. And there are many reasons why you may not want to. There are many reasons why ethically you are prohibited from doing so, but you need to know what's happening. And if you don't know what's happening, that that's the first thing you have to figure out. So, and let's talk about if it is an attorney for just a moment, because it could be your client's attorney, mm-hmm. someone who's representing your client, acting mm-hmm. on their behalf. Mm-hmm. And it could also be an attorney who's representing another party who is not connected or working on behalf of your client? Sure. Yeah. You know, look, most common occurrences where I've seen this come up, a subpoena be issued is, and this is not going to be surprising to people probably listening. If you are working with a individual and they're in the middle of a custody dispute or a uh, divorce proceeding, if they're in, if they're coming to you for trauma because of a car accident or medical malpractice, or if they themselves are doctor or someone else who's facing a medical malpractice situation or has caused a car accident, they drunk, they drove drunk, killed someone, whatever it is, right? The point is, is that there are times where your patient, your client 
may have hired an attorney um, and that attorney may be reaching out to you. That is in some ways very different and some ways not so different from an opposing counsel. It's, it's, it's different in that this is not necessarily adversarial. You have someone who has been hired by your client to get information and they are now asking you for information. Presumably, doesn't always happen. I'm going to tell you that right now. It doesn't always happen. But presumably, what the best scenario is that your client or patient has already told you or that you're already aware that they have suffered trauma. You are aware they're in a legal proceeding. And they tell you that a, their attorney may be sending you paperwork. In that case, then it's really going to be a matter of having a conversation with your patient slash client about that. And, Which is you know, also really important, I think, for people to hear mm-hmm. that um, that you do need to have a conversation with your client, right? Contrary to the story that this other attorney that I mentioned was talking about, clinicians do need to make sure that they're notifying their clients that a subpoena was received because they might not be aware. I mean, they might have had an, a conversation with their own attorney, so they may have had a heads up that something is coming to the clinician, But if it's not coming from their attorney, they may have no clue. So, you know, that is a really important step to make sure that people understand the provider needs to be notifying their client to let them know that this was received. Yeah. And there's there's an important ethical consideration here that I and other attorneys like, you know, any attorney like myself cannot have with that client that you, Melissa, you, the practitioner listening, need to have with your client. From a statutory standpoint, if a subpoena is issued and the client gives authorization in writing to release the records, the records are being released from my perspective as an attorney. That is not necessarily the best case or best practices, though. There is an ethical consideration that needs to be taken into account. I know you can speak to that, Melissa, a bit better. Yeah, and I think that that's an important point is that even if a subpoena comes and it's from the client's attorney, there still needs to be not just notification to the client, but there's a conversation that has to happen with your client. You know, one of the things that really just gets under my skin when we receive subpoenas from attorneys is when I look under the information or the section that talks about what information is being requested, I guarantee that every single time they want the entire medical record, you know, so I'm often having a conversation with our clients because releasing the entire record may not be in the client's best interest. And oftentimes, if someone's attorney is requesting that information, the attorney is acting on their behalf, they're like, oh, yeah, my attorney wants my record. I'll do whatever you want. You're, you know, you're my person. At the same time, your client may not understand the implications of releasing their entire record. You know, for example, I work with a lot of people who have been injured or assaulted on the job. And so they end up coming to me as a result of some form of injury or trauma. And as a result of that workplace incident, they are now going through a process with their job, attorneys, workers' compensation, something. And however, you know, for the clinicians out there, you know that when someone enters into therapy, there's the reason they, that the thing that prompted them to seek therapy. And then there's all the other stuff that shows up and all the other stuff that comes up in the therapy session might not only be related to that incident. And so when someone is requesting an entire record, we are not only releasing information that's specific to that incident, we're sharing a whole lot of other information. 
And so we have to be thinking about and talking with our clients about, do you want all of this information released? Does your, do you want your workplace or their attorney to know about this family thing that happened to you or this other thing that you experienced that we've also been working on? And if not, then you and your client might have to have a conversation about specifically what information you want released. In the past, when I have received these, I've contacted their attorney to say, hey, listen, you know, I spoke with my client. We talked about the subpoena that I received. And we spoke about the information that is being asked for and whether or not that's going to be completely helpful. And so we're requesting that instead of providing the entire record, that I can provide a treatment summary or some type of letter that does confirm, yes, these are the dates of service. These are the reasons why they started to see me without having to release all of this detailed information and sharing it with other parties who don't necessarily need access to all of that information. And I've had a lot of luck in, in talking with attorneys about that. They understand. Um, and having worked in a substance abuse facility for seven years, it has been drilled into my head that we always make effort to release the minimum amount of information necessary. So you, you identify two actual points, one much more literal, and the other one I think um, is not so much. But they're both important points. First off, I want to get to your point about releasing information in a second. But what practitioners also need to understand when it comes to attorneys hired by their clients, not opposing counsel, those attorneys are not trying to, they have a duty to their client's interest. They are not trying to get access to information about all the things from their childhood or they're not trying to just look up information. From an attorney's standpoint, generally, most attorneys don't understand HIPAA, truthfully. That's why I, what I do is, is unique in some ways. Most attorneys, they approach this with more like a broadsword than a fine scalpel. And they say, okay, I have a car accident on my hands. I have my client who I'm defending. I'm trying to you know, win her custody for her children. I want information. So I'm going to request everything. And then I'll just sort through it and figure out what I need to help make my case. And that's a very logical, reasonable justification. But it doesn't take into account because we attorneys are not trained to think this way. We are not licensed practitioners. We shouldn't in some ways be expected to be able to make these calculations. I, by exposure to practitioners, are more aware of it. But I would say the average attorney is not. That there are ethical considerations as to why you should not be releasing uh, too much information if you don't have to. Sure. So there's an educational uh, aspect, a kind of a, attorneys are speaking one language, practitioners are speaking another. But to your exact point, though, I absolutely agree with you as well that, yes, there is an ethical duty you have to your client that you should be careful with what's being released, you know, and this is something that, and this is a really important point, practitioners need to remember this should not be adversarial. So there's going to be two levels of counseling that's going to happen here. There's going to be the counseling that you do with your client. And there's going to be the counseling you do with your own attorney or the other, or the, the client's attorney. And it should not be adversarial. So yes, you should go to the client's attorney and say, here's the reasons why I don't want to release everything. I know the client well. I know exactly what we've talked about. I can help you figure out what information you want and give that to you. And this will answer the questions, the information you need, I can give that to you. And that's why, Melissa, as you pointed out, in your own experience, attorneys in that case are like, okay, sure. 
because that's all they want. You're saving them time by telling them, I will give you X amount of information, which is what you really want. They're not going to have to go digging through all those extra records. So most of the time, they'll be happy. If they feel that they need something more, then usually they'll let you know. And that is a discussion that be had between you, the client, and the attorney. There may be times where the attorney says to you, I need access to full records. You putting your foot down saying, no, I'm not going to do it. Guess what? You're not helping your client. If your client's attorney is telling you they need this information and your client's saying, well, if my attorney needs information, I want them to have it. You, your client just told you something that statutorily you are required to do. Your client just told you to release the records and you will do so, or you will be violating ethical rules yourself. So going down that road doesn't make sense. You should be, it should be, you're working all working on the same team. Yep. And that's exactly what I was just thinking. Right. So even though for counselors, I think, you know, even the idea of attorneys, right. In general, people are like, oh my gosh, that person's an attorney. And there's this idea that they have. And so even talking to an attorney, your client's attorney might make people feel a little bit anxious. Sure. Um, and so also noting, right, that you and your client's attorney are going to be on the same team, yes. right? The attorney is there to help your client. Mm-hmm. You there are also there to help your client. Both of you are interested in protecting your client and working towards your client's goals. And fortunately, in my experience, when I've had these conversations with attorneys, nobody has ever argued with that. I mean, like knocking on wood right now, but nobody has ever argued with that. They get it. They understand, you know, they understand that and letting them know that if you need anything else, you can let me know. But fortunately they've always understood and been helpful with limiting the release of information. Yeah. And I mean, that's the thing is that the attorneys need your help. You know, especially if, and, and this is rare, the rare instance where an attorney may demand or request that you appear on the stand or actually at a deposition, if you've already produced the actual records and that happens, it's because either they or the opposing counsel needs more information. They want you to cooperate with them. So they're not looking to make this adversarial because again, they can't do their job, which is to protect the interests of their clients. That is a sure. very different calculation when the opposing counsel. Yes. When it's the opposing counsel, they absolutely may not have their client's best interest in mind because they are representing representing someone else whose interest they do have in mind. Take a divorce or custody situation, okay? If the opposing counsel is trying to show why your client's unfit to have access to children, well, they absolutely will want the entire records to be able to show they pass history of drug use or abuse as a child or a mental disorder or whatever it is, Okay. It is adversarial. Now, doesn't mean adversarial does not mean mean, does not mean people fight. It does, it can. But when I say adversarial in attorneys and you're dealing with opposing counsel, it doesn't always necessarily have to be that you guys aren't getting along. Adversarial just means they represent the opposing side. There are times where I've seen it get ugly, as can be expected, especially in legal matters where there's a lot of emotions, divorce and custody are another, again, perfect example. But again, even from the opposing attorney's perspective, they're just trying to get information for their client. Now, I have never yet had an attorney from the opposing side where I've approached them and said, I'm not releasing this information to you. And here's why. I had them say, no, you know, you must do this or, or them get angry at me. What happens is, as should rightfully happen, when I'm representing a practitioner, what I say to them is, my client and I have reviewed, 
We do not think that there are grounds for us to uh, reveal this information and we're not going to. And usually they let it at that because at that point, then it's not you, the practitioner. It's not me, the attorney representing my practitioner clients, our problem. At that point, it is between your client and or his or her attorney and the opposing counsel now, and they will fight it out in court if necessary. And if the opposing counsel really, really wants those records, they can go to the judge and, and can try to convince the judge to get them. And that is where you as a practitioner have to be careful. Because as I said, there is a difference between a lawyer and a judge. And if a lawyer opposing counsel is requesting records and your client hasn't given permission and they haven't met the certain scenarios where HIPAA might allow them, allow you to release it, you are absolutely entitled to say, I'm not releasing these records. And they'll have to go to the court and ask for it if they really want it, like I said. So there's an equation here for practitioners to know. Right? An attorney is not a judge. A judge is an attorney, but an attorney is not a judge. Therefore, a subpoena signed by an attorney and not a judge is not a court order. You are not being ordered to release records at that moment. I don't care what an opposing counsel says to you. It is not an order. It is a request. They are saying to you, I would like to have access to these files, these records. And that's a good point, I think, to make. And also thinking about, you know, clinicians who work at agencies, if your agency specializes in working with couples who are navigating divorce or thinking about divorce, or if you are working with children who are navigating their parents' divorce, hopefully your agency has a really good documentations, documentation, including informed consent about how they handle requests for court appearances, Mm -hmm. who the record belongs to. And if you are someone who's working in private practice or a group practice, you also want to be mindful of who you like to work with, who you don't want to work with. You might want to do some phone screening. So if, you know, working with people who are divorcing is not your thing or it sounds contentious, those are things that you want to consider as you're screening your client calls. And as a clinician, hopefully, if you're in private practice or at a group practice, your informed consent document talks about who the client is. Yes. If you're working with couples, for example, or if very you're working important. with families. Um, very, so, very important. Yep. Or how much your fees are for court appearances and things like that. So you want to make sure that before any of this ever happens, before that subpoena ever makes its way to you, that your documentation at your office or at the agency that you work with covers these things. So that way, prior to them occurring, there's something in place. That's a great question. A uh, great point, I should say. And <laughs> I've had this discussion with clients. And what I always ask clients, practitioner clients of mine, when I look over their intake paperwork, when I see that they don't list out for the clients, uh, their clients, therapy clients, what their fees are, particularly not just for therapy sessions, but for everything else, I'm like, why aren't you? When you do get the subpoena, do you want to get paid? Yes. Okay. Well, when you are ordered or if you are ordered to appear in court to testify by an ID judge this time, you should be paid for that time. Because it's not going to happen right away. Likely, you're going to be sitting waiting for the docket to be called. It could be hours. It could be several days. And that time that you're driving to and from, that time that you're at the court, the time that you're waiting at the court, the time that you're testifying, you should be being paid for that. People get paid professionally to testify as expert expert witnesses all the time. 
And you essentially, if you are called to the witness stand, you call to, uh, you are asked to be deposed on on the record um, and it's ordered. They're doing it because they want your information that you can provide. So get paid for it. And should be, your, your, your intake should have that specified for clients up front. To your other point, and this is kind of more, much more of a practical point, not necessarily related to subpoenas, but sort of, I guess. Yeah, if you don't want to get involved in court cases and legal matters or have get subpoenas, don't go into areas that are potentially litigious. Yeah, you're dealing with, if you're dealing with trauma patients, if you're dealing with with custody and divorce, if you're dealing with little kids, you know, a four year old is not going to therapy because everything's fine. I mean, that's just the simple truth. I mean, something else is, is happening. Don't deal with couples therapy. You know, go go with something less less contentious because the fact is, is that when emotions are involved and people have a falling out, or if there's some sort of event like a like a um, sexual trauma or sexual abuse, um, divorce, custody, whatever it is, there may be attorneys, there may be litigation. If there is, and there's attorneys involved, you likely at some point will get a subpoena. Sure. Now, one thing to know is that if you do get a subpoena and it is signed by a judge, your first call at that moment should be to an attorney. I want to repeat that. Your first call should be to an attorney because at that moment, then you are being compelled. It is not a request. It is an order. You are being ordered by a judge. If it is your licensing board, you are being ordered by your licensing board and not replying to that is potentially a way to lose your license or have it suspended or other sanctions. So you want to make sure at that moment that your next call is to an attorney that you, or if you have an attorney, send them the, the, the speed on say, I need your input on this. Unless you are a clinician who works at an agency. In that sure. case, yes. you definitely want to make sure that you are talking with your supervisor, oh, yes. letting your supervisor know that this is what came in the mail today because your agency, one, they need to know. And two, they may have their own attorney that they're going to consult with. They may be reaching out to their professional liability insurance. So if you do work at an agency, you definitely want to be making sure that you're following those steps and not just acting independently. Yes. And I want to actually expand that. It's not just an agency. If you're an employee or even a contractor for another practice and you get a subpoena for a client you've been seeing as part of that practice, you absolutely must let the owner of that practice know. There may be this, it may be a situation where you have to get legal counsel or someone help you review it, or it may be that they take it over and they do have an attorney. But yes, those are, those are definitely you know, considerations you have to make as well. I agree with that. Yeah. And also not forgetting that, you know, you have professional liability insurance. If you're on your own, you're paying for it. They are there and they're able to assist you as well. So that way you can pick up the phone, ask any questions. Mm -hmm. Your professional liability insurance is invested in making sure that you're doing the right thing. Yes. I mean, and that's, that's what the liability insurance does, right? Worst case scenario if you need an attorney to represent you in court for something that happened while well, because of you know the client you're seeing, um, yeah, your liability should cover that and they will provide attorneys to represent you. So yeah, absolutely. That's absolutely the case. One other thing to, to, to consider though is, and you touched on this earlier, I think, what are some uh, mistakes or things that practitioners have done that they shouldn't have? Number one, 
going back to my scenario, you're going through your mail and you see Dewey, Dewey Cheatham and Howell letter and you realize it's from an attorney that's not your attorney and you toss that on your desk and you forget about it. Don't do that. You know, as a rule of thumb in life, but especially as a practitioner with a license to lose, if you get something that looks legal in the mail, you need to open it. And especially it's a subpoena because you don't know that that's not being ordered by the court or by your licensing board at that moment. So you open it. So don't put this on the desk and say, I'll deal with it later. You can do that and say, Tonight, when I'm sitting at my desk, I'll look at it, but don't put it on the desk thinking, well, I'll get back to it like a couple months from now. No, because by that point, you might actually get a subpoena being compelling you then to respond when it could have been resolved really quickly or at least less complicated by just working with the attorney and figuring out what needs to be done and then would have gone away. Okay. You know, another situation is, uh, and this is involves a licensing board. This is an example I saw where a licensing board did request uh, certain records related to a matter that had been referred to it for a complaint for a practitioner. That particular practitioner who is already now the subject of a complaint, which is why the licensing board was asking for the records, did not return the licensing board's calls, did not respond to their letters, did not respond to the subpoena that was issued. And that person, as I understand it, they're not my client, but as I understand it, they are no longer practicing and they do not have a license anymore. And they pretty much, as I understood it, was they gave all the evidence that the license board needed to make a determination as to whether they were fit to be a licensed therapist or not. Once they started going through the files and realized that this person had no intention of responding to them, you don't want to piss off your licensing board. They're the ones who make sure that you are allowed every year to practice. So if you get a, a subpoena from them, again, same rules apply. Go through it. Talk to your malpractice. To, you know, If you have an attorney, great. Definitely talk to, if you're part of a practice, talk to the practice owners. That's one of those situations like with a judge, though, that you must respond to. You know, At some point, you're going to have to respond and you just have to figure out how you're going to do it. So here's what I'm hearing so far, okay? I'm hearing that some things that you don't want to do are... Just not responding when you get a subpoena, just letting it hang and not doing anything with it. Uh, I'm hearing that you shouldn't fail to let your client know that you've received one and that you shouldn't just immediately send over your client's records because you got a subpoena. And, you know, you shouldn't just act independently without notifying your supervisor. So those are the don'ts that I'm hearing. Did we miss anything? Um, no, I would just expand and say that in hierarchical order, there's no hierarchical order here. They all need, all those things you just mentioned need to happen, right? So you need to have the conversation with your client. And while you're doing that, you also need to, if you work for a company or a practice, you need to have made sure that they're aware this is happening. You can then go and have the conversation with the client. If you have your own practice, you have the conversation with the client. Maybe you just let your your malpractice know. You say, shouldn't email over to your attorney. Say, hey, by the way, I got this in the mail. You know, and all those things just kind of happen. And your attorney, if you have one, can then just step in and guide you on what, what we need to do. The worst thing you can do in a situation involving a client, right? Not a licensed board, for example, is that, as you said, you just willy-nilly release these documents. Because when you do that, if the client did not authorize it and you do cause the client harm, or even just by the fact you did it without client authorization and no ethical authorization under the law to release those records just because the attorney asked really nicely, you've committed breach. 
you've broken the law. You've broken your ethics. And that's not where you want to be. <laughs> don't be in that land. Don't go there. So we have the don'ts, right? The things that I'm hearing that clinicians should do if they receive a subpoena, they want to make sure that they open it and don't like lose it somewhere, but they want to open it. They want to check to see who signed it. Who's the person sending the subpoena, check out the information that they are requesting. It sounds like we want to be talking with our clients about that to make sure that our clients are aware, have that conversation as a mental health provider. We want to make sure that we're also thinking about our clients and whether or not it is in their best interest to share all of that information and to advocate for sharing less, if that would be appropriate. And if you're working at an agency or a practice, you want to talk with your supervisor or owner about the subpoena that you received. And otherwise, you can talk with your professional liability insurance, call your attorney to make sure that you're following proper process. Correct. Anything else? As opposed to you should not do. Again, be careful the conversations you have. If you do speak with the attorney, uh, and especially if they're opposing counsel attorney, which I want to also stress, really shouldn't be speaking with the opposing counsel attorney until you've done all the other stuff. Good point. Right. Because when you call that attorney, that opposing counsel, and you say, well, I got your subpoena, they're going to they're going to say, well, OK, you're going to release the records. What are you what are you doing? Right. And you need to make sure you have an answer. Right. If you've spoken to your client and the client said you may not release under any circumstances, you know, then, you know, that can be related to the opposing counsel. But the opposing counsel is going to ask you that question. What are you doing? And you also, okay. you know, if you do speak with an attorney, making sure that as the clinician, you are documenting that call, that you're documenting the date, the time, who you spoke with and the content from that call. And so that you are making sure to document those conversations as well. Yeah, document everything, of course. Yeah. So, you know, I guess from my perspective, then one of the questions that comes up is, okay, well, I got a subpoena, so what are the things I should be aware of, right? Obviously, again, get a subpoena, get someone else to look at it with you, talk to your malpractice, talk to whoever. You're not trained here, right? You're not normally trained to do this. This is not a normal procedure for you. You're, you're trained to deal with clients and help them with their trauma, right? You're not trained to, to, to know how to respond to a subpoena, and you're not expected to, but that's why you have to be careful. Because you want to make sure that all your T's are being crossed, that your I's are being dotted, that if you release records, that you are absolutely in the clear to do so. So we know that this is a lot of information today. And the hope is that you're now feeling a little bit more informed, a little more confident on what you need to do. It's possible that you also feel a little swirly inside and it maybe feels a little bit overwhelming. Um, but hopefully you have a few things to think about in terms of implementing, you know, the correct procedure if or when you would receive a subpoena. And as we mentioned, you might also be interested in checking your informed consent documents, making sure that they're good to go as well. But hopefully you feel a little bit more comfortable in knowing what you need to do if you would receive a subpoena. I want to make one other point, if I may, quickly. And I meant to bring this up earlier, so I apologize. One of the other things, the mistakes I've seen practitioners make is they reveal information just in our conversations with attorneys. Uh, like I said, I, I'm sorry to bring this up now, but it's an important point, and I wanted to make sure it got made. Because, yeah, while you're talking to your client's counsel, it's less of a concern. But if you're talking to opposing counsel and you say, well, 
yes, my, my yes, uh, I agree. The client didn't have a drug problem, but she's with me working on it. Hey, guess what? <laughs> you just reeled to the opposing counsel actual protected health information. You just yeah. actually, you just breached HIPAA by the acknowledgement of the very fact that there is protected health information that you're, that you're containing that would not necessarily be known to someone else. You just revealed that to opposing counsel. So that's another reason why another thing you have to be very careful. That's a mistake I've seen practitioners make and could have very severe implications because if I'm the opposing counsel, I now know that the client had a secret drug problem. Guess what I'm going to do? If you say no to my records request, I'm going to walk in the court and I'm going to say, or you may have just confirmed that they're in therapy when you didn't really know. It could have been that their client said the client was in therapy, but the attorney didn't really know, but you just confirmed it. Correct. And and now I'm going to walk into court and I'm going to say to the judge, let's say in a custody situation, hey, we are arguing over the fitness of the parent to have custody of the child. I was just told by the therapist that that the, she has a secret drug addiction that my client did not know about. I, you know, I want these records, Your Honor. And you just, I'm not necessarily saying what happened, but you certainly made their case a lot stronger as to why they should have access to those records. And so that's a big problem. And, and your client can be rightfully mad at you. As I often said, we've said it, I think, on, the, on when we did our intro show, and I'm going to say it probably numerous times on all the other episodes we, we do. A client can issue a com- or file a complaint against you for any reason. Doesn't mean it's merit. Doesn't mean in the end it won't it will come to fruition. But it does mean that they can go ahead and think they have a have a, a reason to do it and try to do it. And if there is grounds, well, then the next subpoena you might get might be from the licensing board, <laughs> and and they might be asking you questions now about what you did. So you know, again, be very careful. Well, right. And our clients need to be able to trust us. And trusting us means that we are advocating for them and that we are being mindful of confidentiality as well. Yeah. Yes. So the key takeaway is, you know, get a subpoena, make sure you know what you're looking at, make sure you're getting the help you need to help you deal with it. Talk to your client. And generally, and in most cases, it's not going to be that hard to resolve it, to figure out what you need to do with it and get it done and move on with your life. So that pretty much wraps it up for this. Um, we could spend all day talking about subpoenas. I really don't, you know, don't want to get too much more in the weeds. You know, if you have any other questions, you know, please go to our Facebook page. Please uh, reach out to us. As I said during the, during the intro show, um, we do want to hear from you. Send us your questions. Send us your feedback. We'll be back soon with another episode. And we thank you again for joining us today. Take good care today. Thank you for listening to the Protecting Your Practice podcast. Be sure to visit protectingyourpractice.com to connect with us, continue the conversation, and access additional information. As a reminder, the information on this podcast does not constitute legal advice. Listeners should contact their own attorney or paid consultant for all decisions regarding their own practice.